Welcome back. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabrielle. I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Well, not exactly thieves, but beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theater. But we didn't just do theater. We did guerrilla conceptual art projects, or what we called paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which really means we just like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and adjust to their new reality, their new status quo. Yes, and as you can ascertain by now, we were pretty good at that back then. (laughs) Um, So in this episode, we're going to describe Nick's arrest and how it ties into New York City's one of its largest ever police corruption scandals going on at the time. Um, so you got arrested about a week, right. a mere week, yeah. after we put up the teepee. Yeah. Our plan, our goal, after we saw that the teepee was going to stay up, at least temporarily, was to stay anonymous. Even though at day one, the New York Post showed up to get a story. Sure. Right. They were right there. And... Um, I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll read a section from the memoir that I'm writing about the Hill, describing the circumstances and how the arrest went down. Well, did, did you want to tell quickly about the Post? They came up and insisted on you identifying yourself because well, it has to do with identifying yourself. You yeah, know? I could have just said, no, I'm not going to say it, but I made up a name, Nick Manhattan. That's who I was. Right. So. And then they came out with a picture, and after that, anybody was crossing the bridge, periodically you'd hear, hey, Nick, Nick right. Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, right. And I turned Nick, hey, Nick, like somebody I knew, but it was just somebody <laughs> in a car going by. Right. So um, I'll read a section from the memoir, Arrest and Seizure. At the time, I thought my arrest was merely the result of an impulsive act on my part, or to quote Frick, you dumbass. <laughs> But more than two years later, after my encounter with White Boy at the corner, I finally understood how Frick and Frank had homed in on me early on, preparing to use me as their patsy later. Right, so Frick and Frack were two cops that came by periodically, um, and we got, everybody knew them, got to know them well, right? Do you want to explain White Boy, or should we say that for a later date? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, most of that's at the end of the story. Yeah. And I guess Frick and Frack, too figure in later too yes okay um during the first week that we were living in the hill various uniformed police officers introduced themselves to me (laughs) quote unquote (laughs) right they were likely as confused as i was about why their superiors had not ordered the teepee removed instead they were given orders to find out who i was sometimes the introduction was simple and to the point show me your id (laughs) (laughs) I don't have it on me. Where is it? In the teepee? Go get it. Why? Did I do something illegal? I always carried my wallet and ID with me, but I never surrendered it. I knew, like everyone else on the Hill, that the police couldn't demand it or frisk you for it unless they were also willing to arrest you for something. Right, anybody, or anybody who watches television, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it's changed over the years. That was 1990. I'm not sure how... No, they can't demand your ID. Well, at one time they could. The frisk, wasn't that a big frisk and... Stop and frisk? Yeah, that was part of uh, New York policy for a while. Oh, well, yeah. anyway. Yeah. And, of course, some on the Hill out had outstanding warrants. 
so they deliberately didn't carry their IDs. Others, such as Mr. Lee and the geomancer, probably didn't have an ID, but the cops had no interest in them. Nick Manhattan, on the other hand, they were determined to find out who he really was. I'm not sure if the legalese at the TP entrance deterred them from entering. We had painted in large letters on the door flap, this circle and all that's within it or above it is sovereign. The right to privacy and freedom of speech shall not be violated. You know, like a Fourth Amendment thing. Right, right yeah. We, we tried to make our stands very clear <laughs> from the start. But, yeah. <laughs> As if it meant something. Yeah. <laughs> but they must have been instructed in the procedure on how to approach me. The same routine every time. They lifted the door flap with their nightstick and peeked in. If I was there, they requested the quote-unquote Fourth Amendment wise-ass to come outside to talk. I always played the citizen and complied. One afternoon on a walk before dusk, I spotted a roll of linoleum at a small fenced-off construction site that abutted the sidewalk. The linoleum was partially sticking out from under the fence and halfway on the sidewalk, not quite trash, but neglected and undervalued. My sideways thought at the spot was that I should put some linoleum on part of the teepee's dirt floor. If not, someone on the hill would likely want it for their hut. Just before I entered the shantytown with the linoleum on my shoulder, I was stopped by two plainclothes cops who showed me their badges. Later, I would come to know them as Frick and Frack Fury. Frick did the questioning. Fury. You want to explain how that came about? Because they drove... Fury. Yeah, uh, yeah, they drove a fury. I mean, a lot of cops did back in that day. They all had. Yeah, what was that make? It was a make of a car. Yeah, yeah Ford Fury. Ford right, Fury. Right, right. Right. Where did you get that? In some trash. What trash? I pointed south. Down there somewhere. All right, come on, let's take a walk. Show us where you found it. It's an unopened roll of flooring. Seems unlikely someone would throw that in the trash. I can't quite remember exactly where. Show me where you got it, or we'll have to take you in. I hesitated, quickly scanning my citizen mind for a Fourth Amendment response. <laughs> but I knew that in this case, my citizenship had been revoked. I was the same as everyone else on the Hill. Come on, man. If we really wanted to arrest you, we've done it already. Let's take a walk. It'll refresh your memory. I had no hope. My citizen mind was already in lockdown mode, so my criminal mind started scheming. All right, but it might be a pretty good walk. No problem. You're chief, right? That's what they call you. Why don't you put it up there in your teepee before we take our walk? A fake laugh from Frick. Somebody might steal it from you out here. Ha, ha, ha. Eddie was standing out in the yard. He turned his head away as we entered, pretending he didn't notice us. Frick called out a greeting. Hey, Eddie, my man, you see anything exciting today? Eddie vaguely shook his head and took a couple compulsive steps away, obviously apprehensive of what was going down. I set the linoleum down outside the teepee door flap, briefly noting the now meaningless words on it. And as we left for our walk, Frick called back to Eddie, keep an eye on that for Chief and me. It's ours. Don't let anyone touch it. My plan was to lead them indirectly towards the construction site. Somewhere along the route, I should be able to find us, spot a dumpster or, or some other site where I might plausibly have found the flooring. 
<laughs> no dumpsters in sight when yeah. you need them, right? right. <laughs> As we walk, Frick is at my side and silent Frack a couple steps behind us. Frick attempts to be conversational. We both know it's a ploy, but I play along. That's quite a teep you got there. Are you part Indian or something? No, uh-uh. Are you thinking of putting the, in a floor with that linoleum roll? I don't think a real Indian would do that. They had a point. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. The floor should stay dirt. I love that teepee. Never seen a real one like that before. I heard that your girlfriend made it. She's an artist, right? Yeah, she's an artist. I'm sure I blushed, but it was dark now, and he wouldn't have noticed. Frick knew too much about me, about us. I suddenly got a disturbing image of undercover cops trailing her when she left the teepee to go to our apartment in Brooklyn and was on the verge of just coming out and telling him everything about me. Then Frick said something that further convinced me I should do exactly that. You guys seem like good folk to me. I know you're not junkies, so it's hard for me to figure why you're living up there. There's a joke going around the station that you might have more police blood in you than Indian blood that you might be chief of some kind of police. You ain't no police, are you, huh, chief? That would be ironic, the two of us blowing your cover over a piece of linoleum you stole, us being on the same team and all. I was at first relieved, but almost immediately scared shitless. Frick and frack, thinking that I was police was something I never imagined and could be extremely dangerous. I forced a laugh. That's crazy, we're not police, we're artists and social activists. We put up the teepee in commemoration of the centennial of the Wounded Knee Massacre. We didn't think the you, the police, the city would even allow it to stay up. The centennial is almost a month away, so now I need to live in it until then. We're gonna take it down after the ceremony and go back to living in our apartment after that. Well, I wish you the best with that. That's a good cause. I've heard about Wounded Knee. They killed women and children. People were fucking evil back then. Listen, Chief, where are we headed here? We're, we're not walking in a straight direction. Where is this place where you found it? I think it's around the corner over there. In attempting to find the elusive dumpster, I had been leading us in a roundabout <laughs> route to the construction site, but now after reviewing who I really was, my criminal mind switched back into citizen mind. I was going to lead us straight to the scene of the non-crime, the NYC cop motto to serve and protect. And Frick had just said he loved the teepee and its cause. What could go wrong? <laughs> well, at the construction site, there were various scattered materials on both sides of the cyclone fence. I picked it up here. The linoleum roll was on this side of the fence with this other stuff. Frick shakes his head in disbelief. You dumbass. You're busted. You got anything in your pockets that you don't want showing up when you're booked? I pulled out a folded buck knife from my pocket and went to hand it to him. I don't want that. Throw it in the gutter over there and then put your hands behind your back. And so it begins. Yeah. The 5th Precinct Station was only three blocks away on Mott Street. On the walk, I realized I was still the same juvenile delinquent I was at 17 when I first graduated from the local town jail to the county jail. Now, here I was making it into the big time again, the tombs. After frisking me at the station house before transporting me to central booking, Frick had my wallet in his hand. 
shuffling through its contents. My arrest was the pretense for the real prize he was after. He now knew who I was. Mr. Nicholas James Forcaro. Sounds Italian. And then in astonishment, this guy's got more credit cards than I do. <laughs> Even his silent partner, Frack, found his voice with the discovery. Too bad, Mr. Nicholas. You won't be using those where you're going. Right. Okay, so now from my end. I was in the TV hanging, lining, doing this stuff, and it's getting later and later, and I don't hear from Nick. There's no sign of Nick. Now I'm starting to get worried, right? So this was 7.30 p.m. on a Thursday. Um, he was arrested for burglary and criminal possession of stolen property. A couple hours after that, at 9.30, our friend Tom came by the teepee and got me because Nick had one phone call, you know, your one phone call that you get, and he called Tom. I called him because I knew you would be at the teepee, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's where you left me, you right. know? Right, right. Um, so he called Tom, and Tom came and got me and told me what, what was going on. So we went down to the station house, the 5th Precinct, and but Nick had already been transferred to 100 Center Street, Central Booking. So an hour and a half after that, at 11 p.m., Tom and I sat in our apartment and started calling lawyers. So I called one for the simple reason that he had 24-hour service, but he turned out to be a real kind of cliche of a bona fide sleazebag lawyer, um, I found out later, trying to take me for as much money as I had. But I needed somebody. I needed somebody to get this process underway, you know, so I went with him. The following morning, and I barely slept that night, obviously, so this is now 6.30 a.m. Friday morning, I went to Pacific Studios, his day job that I mostly did, and, and opened up and set the answering machine to beep me if there were any calls uh, left, messages left. And then I went to the bank and I got $1,000 in cash. And then I went to this Upper East Side Brownstone, which is where this guy's office was. I know yeah. his name, but I'm not going to mention it here. He made me wait, acted real important, leaning back in his chair, answering phone calls, making you know me listen to these phone calls. He had no receptionist. He answered all the calls himself. Uh, he, he actually told me to bring $5,000 because that's hypothetically how much it was going to cost. But I had asked him, well, what is your fee to do this? And he says to me, well, how much do you have? So <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, I kept trying to pin him down, but I couldn't. So I got a thousand bucks out of the bank and went there with him. And then he said, oh, well, what, you know, well, what is it worth? That, that's what he said. He said, well, how much is it worth it to yeah. you? That's when I tried to pin him down. Well, how much is it worth it to you to get him off and get his record cleared? Right. right? So I'm sitting in his brownstone waiting for him to get done, and suddenly fear <laughs> overwhelms me. I'm, I'm realizing that I'm sitting in a huge brownstone by myself with a slimy creep in a three-piece suit with $1,000 cash in my pocket. Right. And I had told him that we had lawyer friends, but that they weren't criminal lawyers. And he said, well, why don't you call your friends 
and uh, confirm from them that you're doing the right thing. You'll feel better. I said, good idea. Because at least then I could let somebody know where I am if I never right, turn okay. up again and they can look under the floorboards. Never mind. Um, so during that call, our friends Matt and Richard told me that they'd take the case for a thousand bucks, even though they're not criminal lawyers. So I thought, okay, I think I'm better off going this route. So I told Mr. Sleesbag politely to vamos and drove down to their john street office and filled them in and gave them the cash and then i went home and then we all waited all night for nick's docket number to come up and i was talking to richard periodically you know wendy was working on it wednesday wendy his wife was working on it uh you know of course matt his partner and um you know, we'd talk at, at three o'clock, at four o'clock, at five o'clock. Nobody got any sleep that night trying to figure out what's going on if, if we would hear, hear anything. So then at 6 a.m. on Saturday, now remember, Nick got arrested Thursday evening. His docket number finally came up. And Matt and Richard and I met down at the courthouse. So they got all the paperwork, and it turns out that lawyer actually did have somebody downtown starting the process, like he said. Uh, later on, he wanted money for that, and I told him, yeah, well, that's too bad. We never had an actual agreement. I suggest you going forward that you change your methods, um, and you might have gotten some money, but thanks for the preliminary work, right? But then I got another wave of panic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Richard and Maddie, right? <laughs> Richard and Maddie, who are not criminal lawyers. Richard's looking at the paperwork going, hmm, wondering out loud. I don't understand this portion of it. Matt says that the original charges of burglary and criminal possession have already been reduced to petite larceny. <laughs> <laughs> petite, yeah. And that's like, oh, oh my God. You know, anybody who's ever watched a procedural knows at the very least <laughs> that it's called petty larceny, not petite larceny. So then I had another wave of panic. So that was like 6.30ish, by 9.30 or so. Now this is now 36 hours later, right? They're supposed to arraign you within 24 hours. And I'm almost sure they later on made uh, a, a, a law to, to keep you no, know, they, that. Otherwise they had to let you go. Back then no, they fudged everything. No, they know? were fudging it, but there was a law there then. But nobody got out and I wasn't... It, I got out just as soon as everybody else did. You know, I was Oh, no. Watching. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. you, it wasn't just you. No, I know. Right. So in any case, we're now in front of the judge, Nick and Richard, who's doing all the talking. And uh, he starts explaining that Nick is a solid member of the community, uh, a friend of his for a long time, and somebody with a social conscience, and trying to help the homeless. And now the judge is super sympathetic. It turns out that he belongs to a church group that also tries to help the homeless. And he then asks if the assistant district attorney couldn't see his way clear of letting Nick go, that at the age of 38, he's not about to embark on a life of crime, having no record, never having, you know, having a clean record. I won't say never having been arrested, but okay. they don't know that. Having a clean record. Um, and that, you know, he's not in, uh, he's not likely to a criminal right now and uh and that he just took took some roofing material that had practically no 
worth a couple of bucks. So, um, and then he was trying to help homeless people. So now the Chinese ADA is under a lot of pressure because the fifth precinct, it's his job to clean it up. And now he finally has Nick and he's not about to let him go. He wants to make an example of him because he also knows that the Hill is a big part of the problem. And well, he thinks of it as a part of the problem, or the community the thinks community, of it. Absolutely. Yeah, the community, absolutely. It's a shanty yeah. town, and they know yeah. that people are criminals, you know, a lot of yeah. them. Um, so he's, he's digging in. And back and forth, back and forth, the judge is trying to sway him, and he wasn't going to let him go. Suddenly, the judge asks Richard, uh, what's the name of Nick's theater company? Yeah, because he had said that they were doing uh, a play with the homeless. A play with the homeless. What's right. the name of Nick's theater company? I'm sitting back on, come on, Richard. Think fast. Think fast. Do not yeah. say Thieves Theater. Thieves Theater, right. <laughs> it wouldn't help the cause. It right? wouldn't help the cause. And he did. He said, um, the area is called The Hill. But what's the name of the theater company? Well, they're doing a play called The Hill, and they're developing it now. And so he's, you know, he's obfuscating he's trying to get out of this and sure enough the judge didn't pursue it and uh and finally because the judge was pretty adamant the ada reluctantly lets him walk and we all walk out of the courtroom and the judge yells to our back i hope the play was worth it yeah right <laughs> so the upshot was that all the charges were going to be dropped by December 17th, which was about two weeks later, uh, and that if he stayed out of trouble by May 30th, six months later, um, Nick could get his fingerprints back uh, if he continued to stay clean. Yeah, we <laughs> saw Richard. Me, do you remember? Yeah, yeah exactly. we saw Richard six months later i mean he w at the time wendy was pregnant and then she had christian mm -hmm. and then we went to uh that we were invited to the to the baptism yeah so we went up to the church on the upper west side <laughs> and we walked in late but anyway. no no we were sitting in back okay and the whole christening had taken place you know it was a whole church full right. of people a lot of people there but when it was all over uh people were just you know, starting to stand up. Most of them were still sitting and yakking. And R Richard was up front and he sees Nick. Now he sees that we actually had made it there and we were there. Mm. He goes, hey, Nick, I got your fingerprints back. <laughs> yeah, right. In the church. Right. In the church In to it. all his friends. Right. Any case, when we got back to the teepee, we were really relieved that it was still standing because it had only been a week. And we had now left it for three days, which we had not done before. Somebody was always there. And you thought it was a mistake that uh, I left, the, you know, that, that I did leave the teepee. You said a public defender could have handled it. Well, I I'm thinking, you know, wait, wait a second. Wait. Okay. I mean, I, everybody on the Hill goes through the system. They get out with a public defender. That's the way it happens. You know, they don't get lawyers generally and you get out with a public defender now in this case i don't know if it would have happened because richard did personalize the story and he really f he made it happen that i could get out it probably wouldn't have happened with just a pd yes and you might have gone to jail nick they get yeah. out but not not overnight no, you get out they, with they a bond you get out with bond okay 
Okay, you know. but he made it happen that you walked away free and clear. Yeah. Do you honestly think that no. with a public defender, no. it, it was Richard and the fact that he was a friend of ours, yeah. and he argued this in front of the right, judge exactly. brilliantly, that you were able to walk away from okay, it, yeah. you know? Um, so we got back to the teepee, and uh, everything was great. It was exactly as we had left it. And they were so proud of having, ta having, having taken good care of the teepee because we established right from the beginning that it is a drug and alcohol-free zone and that that would not be violated. Otherwise, you know, the end. And they were really proud that they didn't allow anybody in, that they took good care of it, and they also gave Nick a hero's welcome. Well, it's not a hero's welcome. Yeah. No, they just said, oh, okay, you're here. Oh, you're now through the system. Cool. It gave <laughs> you real credibility. Yeah, well, credibility. because you'd been through the system, as they said, right? Right. I was more like them than I was and, an outsider. Than and, then, and then, uh, well, then you had started smoking again, though, inside. Yeah, yeah we, I had to we start hadn't smoking. been smoking. Yeah, I had. Know? I mean, that was the whole what was going on in jail. I did that because of that. When you go into jail, they take it then they take everything except your cigarettes and i think like five or ten dollars they let you keep in your pocket they allow commerce to go on inside the jail and so you you give money for this or cigarettes for that it's mostly to find a place to sleep because you're there for 36 hours and unless you secure a place on the bench yeah is, on the bench or even that? on the you know whatever somebody to watch over you so you give them a cigarette and they watch over you or you know whatever you give them a dollar or whatever and they watch over you you also used your phone card right yeah that's how i that's how I, <laughs> that i had a phone card to call you and i had a number that i punch in well dial in back then they'd leave a a pay phone so you could reach through the bars and pick it up after you were at a certain section. But you only could call collect, and you only could do it once or twice or whatever. So people wanted to use my phone card. Yeah, back then, just to explain quickly, you, you were able to buy phone cards that had a number on it, and you bought, bought it for a certain amount that you could use to make phone calls, right, and then yeah. you punched in the numbers and that m amount would start depleting depending on the length of the phone call. Yeah, so I mean, I used that and got cigarettes for that and that's how I got through those 36 hours and got some sleep actually, yeah. Right, what was weird is I think somebody had to pick up at the other end because you never left me a message and I think those phone cards didn't work unless, because I, I, I don't remember how, I can't imagine yeah, why sure I wouldn't have gotten... I can't remember either. I mean, unless I you call Pacific Studios. I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah, who knows where you were at. In I any mean. case, I, I, I just know that I was really scared when I didn't hear anything from you, right? right. But whatever. Um, so you started telling the people on the Hill the story of how that you got packed into the paddy wagon like sardines with withdrawing addicts yeah, and they, they were puking it. all over, they right? They knew the story. Yeah, yeah, they knew the whole story. But the cops were such assholes. You know, they stopped. They only had to drive five blocks, but they knew these addicts were jonesing, so they deliberately stopped and got coffee to torture them, right? But in any case, so you started telling the people on the hill on this and they were going yeah 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 you know everybody knows and that you're right it's important to stay alert inside 
the cell, right? Yeah. Why why are you Well nothing. I mean yeah, yeah, all that. I mean, it's I thought you were disagreeing with something. Well, I was disagreeing. I mean, I was when you said <laughs> that they stopped for coffee, the tortured addicts. No, you know, they were jonesing whether they were in the cell or in the back of a paddy wagon. I know, but why did they have that? You're packed in. Well, what, that's because of the you story. Told me the story. I told you the story because somebody puked in the paddy wagon. Right, yeah. And so it was stinking in there. Right. That's the whole thing. They puked in the paddy wagon and the cops stopped for coffee and just let us off sit in the smell. Right. And the puke, you know, that's yeah. all. So. The people on the Hill were experienced with all this, obviously, including all the individual cops in the precinct. They also, and we had mentioned this before, reiterated the deal they have with the cops, which is you keep your activity out of the 5th precinct, your criminal activity, and we will turn a blind eye. And they, the people on the Hill, assumed that the cops were trying to teach Nick a lesson, but... That wasn't the story. They wanted to know who you were. Right, exactly. But the people on the Hill didn't know that. That's just what they assumed. Um, They also said, the people on the Hill said, this is a bad time of year because it's Christmas and the the cops are trying to get overtime to buy Christmas presents. So they will gladly shuffle through the whole ugly process to rack up the overtime hours. Anyway, you done good in their eyes. Well, whatever. I mean, I went through the system like they all they had. And it's sort of like, yeah, now we weren't so much outsiders. In other words, they still knew who we were. We were artists and whatever. Right. But we weren't above the law <laughs> in any way. Right, right. right. Yeah. Or, or so goody two shoes, I guess. <laughs> well, whatever. Right. I think citizens are arrested all the time for no reason. Yeah, too. sure. Right. Uh, so later on, Tony, Woodsman Tony, and a guy named Speed came in after Nick's arrest, and we told him the story, them the story about trusting the cops, and I just remember Speed was really sympathetic, and Tony was more in the Nick, you're a chump camp. (laughs) Yeah, like Tony knows how to stay out of jail. He was always in jail, too. Yeah. Yeah. But, um... So this arrest was really dramatic, but what was even more dramatic, and this is a crazy story, crazy story, that is still the most strange phenomenon that has happened to me to this day. And this happened the night before you got arrested. And right. this, this will figure in down the line prominently. Yeah, because uh, I was walking across the street on Canal Street, right outside the, the shantytown, and a colored snapshot blew up on my feet and it just caught my eye and I picked it up just to see what it was and then I kept looking at it and then I realized what it was it was a shot of the hill the shot of the area of the hill but before there were any huts or anything else on it and it was taken from a perspective up on the bridge looking down and you could see the hill with the weeds but no huts the billboard right and there was a tree the billboard that had Winston and Winston ad on it, which is going to figure in down the line right. prominently uh, as well. Well, we had started smoking, and I start, we started smoking Winston with the Golden Eagle on the, at that time, logo on it. Yeah, and because it had metaphysical uh, significance well, for whatever. Nick the Eagle. Yeah. yeah. So that would figure in later on as well. But this photograph blowing up at Nick's feet, which we still have, was at least seven, eight years old, at least. 
based on the huts and how long they were there because there was nothing there. So it was, you know, you're wondering, does, where did this come from? Did somebody plant it? This is really weird. So an overview right now of what was going on with the police and the corruption scandal at the Which time. Which we didn't know at that time. No. No, because uh, we were in the middle of it, but not really following the papers or anything at no, that time. Right? No, But also the papers, it, had, it didn't come out yet. It was it, still in the, middle in the middle of, of it, happening. Right. There wasn't but the, the cops knew what was right. happening, which knew. is why they asked you if you were a cop. Right. And this is going to become clear. We didn't know what we were in the middle of until later. So there was a man, a cop, named Michael Dowd. And if you guys ever want to see a crazy, crazy documentary, watch The 7-5, as in The 75th Precinct. It's jaw-dropping. Not just because of what this guy was doing, but also about how unrepentant he was. So Michael Dowd joined the NYPD in 1982, and he was assigned to the 75th Precinct in Brooklyn. And there he began working with drug dealers, robbing their rivals and selling cocaine. The 75th Precinct is East New York and was the city's second deadliest jurisdiction with over 100 murders a year. In the beginning, he only stole cash from crime scenes, but then his activities went unchecked, so he got bolder and bolder and started robbing drug dealers and dealing drugs himself. In 1986, he started working with this guy called Adam Diaz, who was a cocaine trafficker who made a million bucks a week. And Diaz used supermarkets in East New York as a front for his cocaine operations. And he wanted an inside man, a cop, to warn him of outside threats when raids were coming. So he bought out Dowd for 24000 bucks and paid him 8000 bucks a week. So Mikey... <laughs> oh, yeah, Mikey was uh, what um, already then, though, wasn't it? No, it was at the towards the end. It was of, later. It was later on. Later yeah. on, you know, the 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 people used to refer to the cops as five O. Yo, five O, meaning Hawaii five O is where they, that no, name. They didn't yell at the cops. They were. They, it was like an alert. No, my, uh, both Nick, because I remember one time Red needed uh, a cop's attention for something or other because it sticks with me to this day that he actually called the cops. Yo, 5-0, come here. Right. And then they started calling him Mikey. Mikey. Yeah, Mikey. So right. as a warning, they, you wouldn't call a cop Mikey. No. Later, even later on when, you know, right. Yeah. Um, so Mikey was starting to feel untouchable, right? Because nobody was going after him. And uh, he, he eventually became, of course, the most corrupt cop in the NYPD and the poster boy. And without a shred of oversight, he brought in fellow officers into his little gang. And this was now the height of the cocaine wars. Um, Dowd's supervisors spent little or no time overseeing these officers in East New York one of the city's poorest neighborhoods. And Dowd shook down these and extorted uh, these businesses and these drug dealers. So in this documentary, he, he was bragging. 
Life was wonderful. Life was sinful and glorious. I felt like Scarface, only I was a white Irish boy from Long Island. I would sell 18 kilos to the biggest dealers in the area and then sell 7 kilos myself. I was making $68,000 a week until I was caught. Like I said, completely unrepentant, even after he got out of jail, right? So by 1990, which is when we got there, Michael Dowd was making so much money on the side that he sometimes apparently forgot to pick up his paycheck from the NYPD. And he also started drinking heavily uh, you know, on the job and, and started using his own supply. And in 92, his entire life came crashing down. And then uh, that's when, in July of 92, he was arrested and he was indicted with six, 63 of his colleagues for murder, conspiracy, right. so the whole, and drug-related offenses. Yeah, so the whole culture of the police was corruption, and it, yes. it, it went all over. Absolutely. Okay, so now Dowd's, th- this shocked the city, right? So they, and it shocked the Internal Affairs Division. So they formed the Mullen Commission and tried to get to the bottom of this. And then they were shocked that over the course of years, there had been 16 complaints about Dowd, uh, about drug dealing and robbery and all that, and that were never acted upon by the cops. And that's when the FBI started investigating. And they implicated 10 precincts, including the 5th precinct, which we were in. And the cops there were mostly robbing merchants and dealing drugs. Yeah, but it was also tied into the gangs that were there who were also taking money to protect the places. So the cops and the, the gangs were sort of in cahoots. In other words, the gangs were taking money from the merchants, but they were paying off, off the, the cops. cops. Yes. Right. And don't forget, in Chinatown, there were so many illegal immigrants, as we, as we had mentioned once before, they were not going to complain to the cops about what they were being put through and how they were being extorted. You know, So... When Dowd, he testified before the Mullen Commission in September of 93. Keep in mind, we were there from 90 to 93. And uh, admitted that he was a drug trafficker. And in 94, he was convicted of racketeering and conspiracy to distribute narcotics. And he was sentenced to 16 years, of which he served 12 and a half years. And when he came out, that's when this doc- documentary was made, The 7-5. And this is- That's why he could talk you know, so honestly. Uh, yes, too, right. exactly, because he had done his time. So, you know? I mean, that was the- environment we were in at the time when I got arrested you know rumors were flying that that's how they thought that I was FBI or something yes or I was a cop doing because they were all the culture was there even though the Dow thing went down the Dow thing went down later well it was it was going down now Dow started in 86 you know it was going but you know they knew the investigation exactly there were no headlines you know FBI uh zeroes in on cops was in uh, the summer of 92. Right. So, so that's in- when the public knew was aware. It. But the cops themselves were aware. And it finally dawned on us. We, we, we figured out, we, we kept thinking, this is absurd. FBI? Really? The FBI is going to put up a teepee? You know, well, like, yeah, it still is. It absurd. still is, is absurd on some level, but they, you know, they were they were just paranoid of everything, of everything, and Frick and exactly. Frack and the others were part of of whatever culture there was. Taking 
people would be walking back with the stuff they stole to the hill, and the, the undercover cop would stop and take their stuff. They wouldn't arrest them. They would just take it because, oh, I need that sawzall, or I need that whatever that they had stolen. Or they'd fence it at the same fence that everybody yeah. else went to. They, well, that's, eventually they had a fence it, so it was always the same fence. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right, so that is the story of Nick's arrest and the cop environment that we were in at the time. So the next time, we're going to get to our relationship with the media. Because after a while, we thought, we need some kind of way of fighting back. And we have a, had a lot of control over who we let in on this. And we, we will get into that next time, because it was a way of flexing our own muscles a little bit. Well, I wouldn't say that much muscle. I mean, well, what, yeah, I mean, what, what is it, the fourth estate or whatever? What do they call the press? Yeah, but the idea <laughs> being that if you do have a press relationship you do have more power than you have some protection protection the average right. citizen right? right so thanks again for listening to the hill of ith's theater and if you like what you hear please subscribe and ring the bell and that way you'll know when our next episode is out and check out our website at thiefstheater.org or follow us on instagram or twitter at tp on the hill that's t-i-p-i on the hill and facebook and facebook we added facebook all right. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>